something that's out there. And so they, they clap because it looks like something that's relevant. Other people, they don't want, ah, that relevance is tainting the truth. They like it if it's just true. Epiphany Fellowship, we're committed to marrying the two. So what you see is a marriage of a particular cultural context with this particular faith that is shared by a particular community, namely the Christian community. So we hope that as you watch and you see us in our formative years, these early stages where you're still, we're still trying to figure out what is our identity as a young, new faith-based community or a new community of faith in this area as we're working through what really is our DNA? What's going to mark us? How will people talk about us when they look back and say, yeah, I remember when a new group of believers moved into the North Philly area. What really was it? Hopefully people will know. Well, I know one thing. A lot of them looked like they were straight from the street. Some of them looked like they were businessmen and women. Some of them looked like they were college students. Some of, but they all shared this faith that has changed this community. So that's what we're hoping for. I'm going to pray, and then I want to dive into the scriptures. <clears throat> ah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday, another first day of the week where people, Christians all over, have gathered. Uh, just to recognize that it is fitting and it is a must for the people of God to assemble together and celebrate the things we have in common. We have in common the fact that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. It is him who was laid first and we must be aligned with him. He doesn't have to align with us. Ah, Lord God, our common faith consists of our God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit who participated in creation and in recreation. Our common faith is in the God who saw sin disrupt his plan and then already had a plan to remedy that disruption through the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we are unified around these things uh, our common faith consists of a, a virgin, young teenager, who was moved on by the Holy Spirit, impregnated with the Son of God, become man, who was sent by God the Father. Lord, we're unified around the fact that this Son of Man was born that he lived perfectly, that he died a death that we deserved. That he was buried and three days later he got up. Our common faith. Be with us today, Lord God, as we contemplate more wonderful, beautiful truths about who you are, how you roll, and how we ought to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I was praying to God to give me patience during these early years as we're seeking to create an epiphany DNA. We're seeking to make sure that our, our community of faith develops some essentials that's inherent to us. And when people see us and when they think of us, they know that's us because they know our DNA. They know 
the things that we're made of. They know what's near and dear to our heart. Nobody, no local assembly is perfectly balanced in all things. Everyone has extremes. Everyone goes too far to the right or too far to the left with things. But I'm praying hard that we can try our best to be committed to wrestling through what it means to have a balance, passion, and contemplative meditation, excitement, and yet uh, uh, a, a ability to be sober, uh, intellect stimulating the mind, and yet emotion stimulating the heart. Obedience, yes, as well as sacrifice. This, this integration. So I want to start with just rehashing three terms you're going to hear if you continue with us. They are a great segue into our message today. Three terms. One is Christocentrism. Christocentrism is going to be a big deal around here. It's one of our core values. And that is this understanding that Christ is central in all matters, not just religious matters. It's this idea of Jesus Christ having the freedom to dominate any platform, any scene where his people are involved. Now, one day that will be universal. But we don't go and demand that secular establishments be Christocentric. But where we do is expect that the people of God will be Christocentric. You would think that this is without saying, however, I'm fresh out of and still somewhat inside of a what we call a Christian hip hop matrix where all over the country there are people who who come from a hip hop generation where hip hop was one of their primary pride and joys. They then somehow latched on to Jesus Christ, wanted to blend those things. Well, in doing so, there's a struggle. How much of the hip hop are we to hold on to? How much of the Christ are we to embrace? You would think it's given that you embrace Christ totally and anything that can't accompany that embrace must be put to the side. But not so is the case for many people will argue vehemently that they have the right to put Jesus Christ to the side in their endeavors to be accepted as hip hop. So that's the only reason why since then, almost in a reaction, we have made Christocentrism, Christ as the center, not just Christ in the mix. I mean, Christ can be on them. He can be the cherry on top of everything. He can be on a little garnish on the side. But what we're aiming for and what the Bible uh, promotes and what the ministry of the spirit was given to us to do is to promote Christocentrism, Christ at the center of it all, without you having to dig and look and try, you see it. The second one would be community. Seems like I remember a time when, for me, community was just the center that put on summer programs. I didn't realize what community was. Community was either the projects, that was only like physical or social community that I remember. Big project buildings with a whole world unto itself. And I used to go and we used to witness. My father would take me to share Christ in the, those communities. And I remember going. But I remember growing up as a Christian and then getting reintroduced to Christian community or biblical community. Now, I didn't know that I had not been being schooled on what we call Christian community. But what I did realize is they reminded me that Christianity 
inherently is a community affair. It's not primarily personal. Now, I recognize that I had fallen into the track of being more in the trap of being more individualistic with my faith when I preferred private time or quiet time alone than getting with other believers to chop up the scriptures. I noticed I had been convinced that it was cool. I don't want to go to the library. People are there. Hand me the Internet. I'll Google. I don't want to go in and have to be waited on and stand in line. I like to stay in my car and drive through. Uh, I, I, I like this idea of living life away from people because there's nobody I like more than me. Well, Christianity, God has robbed us of the ability to join the wave of individual Christianity. We can get Libronics, which is a new Bible software that keeps you from having to ever go anywhere and study. You can have it all on your laptop and you can download messages so you never have to go to church and hear a preacher. But he says, but now you ventured into something that's not Christianity, Christocentrism community. We're going to be hammering away at these things so that we buy into as a new community these things. The third one is missional. Another word I hadn't heard before till recently. I heard missions. I heard mission trip. I heard missionary. I had never heard missional. Missional has been described as taking the whole scope of missions work but using it as an adjective. So you describe even non-missionaries who are living as though their missionaries are missional. If you never leave your block, you can be missional, which in turn really is like being a missionary. So one of the things that we stress here is that, one, that, that we have the opportunity and it is God's plan. It is God's steez. It is God's style. It is God's heart for people to be able to apply an adjective to their life. And that adjective is missional. If you never open your mouth about Jesus Christ, if you never go out your way to, to connect with somebody, you're not missional. Even if you go on a missions trip, that doesn't make you missional. Because missional is a lifestyle missions trip or a couple weeks, maybe a summer. Christocentrism, community, missional. Those are three things. Mm, give me that. We went out of board a clock, so I won't say, oh man, I'm too long. I'll know if I'm too long, but I'm having to tell you. <laughs> three of them. That's our springboard. This last one, the missional part, fits in good with today. But for those of you all that are visiting, we're studying our, the name of our series as we go through the book of John is Jesus Christ Unplugged, striking footage of Christ's words and works. One of the things that we're doing is trying to go through John to lay a, I guess, a foundation in our early Christian years as a as a, as a church, we want people to do what John wanted people to do. Believe in Jesus Christ, chapter 20. Believe in Jesus Christ, not just so you can be caught up in somebody's religious campaign. He says, I want you to believe in Jesus Christ. And by believing, you wind up 
seeing and experiencing life in his name. Life the way he tailor makes it. Now, everybody thinks they're living life. It's only when you get into the Bible that you see life as God would tailor make it. Plus, you realize that he just gives you a foretaste of a life that he can't pull off here because the life that he's going to pull off requires he reboot everything, redo everything, rework everything, make people new and bring them into a position where they're newly equipped to handle the new life that he's promised since the old life is riddled with all kinds of stuff that even we can spot and complain about. You think we got a problem with this life. Imagine God, the one who made it, has a design for it and spoke it in a perfect order. And now look at it. So if you got a problem with it, don't worry, there's a new one coming. The question is, from John's perspective, is will you be a participant in this new life? And John says, well, guess what? I'll write a whole book devoted to the one who ushers in the new life, to the one who's responsible for the new life, the key to the new life, who had to go through a whole earthly campaign in order to give us the opportunity to have the new life. And if you, after listening to me, hear my words about Jesus Christ's words and works, if you believe in him you'll experience and have life in his name. So we started with this whole idea. John comes on the scene. He says, now before we get started, I want you to believe in this Jesus as the one who was God before he came. So in verse, in chapter one, we started seeing how John started by saying, wait, the story doesn't start when he came on earth for that earthly campaign that you're to believe in him. It started before he even came to earth. He was the word who became flesh. Then he says, and there is a witness who let people know in his day, as we ought to be witnesses to let people know in our day, that the word who always was became a man. That witness was John the baptizer. In an age where people was glad to focus on him, he deflected the attention off of him. He deflected the attention off of his gifts and his ministry and said, you're missing it. I'm pointing to the one who is before me and who is above me. Feast your eyes on him. Jesus is witness. Then we saw Jesus who stepped on the scene in rabbi mode where he snatched up as common was in the, in the day. He chose people and allowed them to treat him as their rabbi. He moves on the scene and we see him at a wedding where he demonstrates, yo, I am here to usher in a new era, an era that will expose everything and everyone who came before me as nice but no cigar. As nice, but not as nice as it needs to be when we start talking about a whole new everything. So Jesus Christ comes on the scene at the wedding and says, oh, let me start with the religiosity of the day. And he, the, we saw in the wedding of Cana, he changes waters to wine and the water was placed in the ritual, Jewish ritual pots for ritual cleansing. He says, you see those pots? No longer will these pots be able to produce what I'm going to produce. Fill them up with water. That's as best you all can do. Now watch what I can do. And he brings wine out of it, showing you men can fill up their life with all kinds of efforts but only Jesus Christ can bring wine or, in their case, kingdom happiness and real fulfillment. 
We saw him move on to a temple. He goes to the temple. Oh, I know, more religion. You all like this place, and you got business, religious business going on. Came in, and he cleansed the temple, and he said, hey, I'm here to get things back on track. So it's not my father's work that's going on here. You all are riding the wave of my father's work doing your own agenda. So he gets things back on track at the temple and says, matter of fact, one day this temple's going to be gone. I'm going to have to spark it. You're looking at the new and improved temple. I'm here to outdo your rituals. I'm here to outdo your buildings. I'm here to outdo your agenda. We saw him as a teacher. He meets Nicodemus. And today, that actually provides almost a contrast for where we're going. Nicodemus is what we call a paradigmatic person. Say that with me. Paradigmatic. One more time. Y'all didn't sound convinced. Paradigmatic. All right. Now, you know, we we went to seminary. You ought to want to hear every now and then something that sounds like it. Paradigmatic. Many of the one-on-one conversations that you the Bible or in John's book are paradigmatic, meaning they form a paradigm. Don't sleep on the fact a paradigm is a model of principles that go beyond the particulars. Watch this. In other words, You ought to study how Jesus relates to Nicodemus and ask yourself, how am I like Nicodemus? How am I not like Nicodemus? And therefore, how would Jesus respond to me in the ways I'm like Nicodemus? How would he respond to me in the ways I'm not like Nicodemus? Nicodemus in particular happens to represent the person who's most I mean, externally likely from the externals, judging from the appearance, they would look like people who are the most likely people to have and experience the new life. The most likely people to be welcomed into God's new world when he recreates it. Nicodemus represents he was a Jew. The Bible says that Gentiles were not Jews. Therefore, they were separated from God's arrangement and they were without hope in the world. Uh, Nicodemus didn't have that problem. He was a Jew, so he was part of the covenanted people. Therefore, he had hope. He did have some promises made to him as being a part of the Jewish nation. So you would think, all right, I'm a Jew. He was a Pharisee, which means he knew the scriptures better than the average Jew. So this is a person that not only is part of the right people group, but he also has the right disciplines in his life, religiously speaking. So this is the person you would think is definitely the kind of person that God would would show up in God's program. Nicodemus also was a leader of the Jews. So he had leadership, some responsibility to himself. And Nicodemus was a teacher. So he wasn't just a leader. He's opened his mouth and people listened. Externally speaking, John starts with him saying many people believed But a lot of people's belief wasn't the kind of belief Jesus accepted. Paradigmatic. We ought to ask ourselves. I know we say we believe in God, but is it the kind of belief that God accepts? Well, how about if all my my belief is really in the fact I look like externally speaking, I measure up. God says, nope, I'll tell you like I told Nicodemus. You must be born differently. You must be born from above. That's where we started. 
Today, we have the opposite because we're in chapter four. Today, we don't have the most likely person to show up in God's new world, the most likely person to show up in God's kingdom. We have the least likely person. And that means anywhere in between we fall, whether we're like Nicodemus or whether we're like the person we're going to meet in a minute. God is saying, I got to take both of you and introduce you to something you've never heard before, something you've never seen before, before me or outside of me. So let's read. Chapter four of John. You all with me? All right. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself was not. uh, Excuse me. Although he himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. I want to stop right there. Today, we get introduced to someone from Samaria. The least likely... And let me tell you why. We're going to see an encounter with someone from Samaria. The Samaritans traced their history all the way back to the time where there was a divided kingdom in Israel. So they're partly part of the ethnic people, but they sort of aren't. Because Assyria, follow me, latch on to this. This is just history for those who don't know. Assyria, a nation came in in 72, excuse me, 722 BC, and they took the 10 tribes. The, the kingdom was split. There were 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. They took the northern tribes and they snatched the bulk of them out, send them to Assyria. What a mess everything up. They took some other people they had conquered from Babylon and Media and they flushed them into the land where the 12, 12 tribes were. So by the time they mixed and mingled with uh, with the, the remaining and, you know, they always left the weak and they always left the unimpressive and they took the strong. So the strong Israelites of the northern kingdom were deported to Assyria. The rest were left. Well, it's the rest that were mixed up with people from Babylon and me and, and media. Now, you know, Daniel, the story of Daniel, for those of you who do. Daniel said it was hard, and he was one of the strong that went. Uh, Daniel said it was hard to stay pure, but he, him and his friends were committed to purity. Now imagine a cat that's not, and he was in the king's palace. Imagine the people who get left behind and their weakness. Well, they, when they mixed up with Samaria, they basically defected from a pure religion, a pure commitment to Yahweh, the, the, the Jewish God. And hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans developed so much so that the Samaritans said, we don't want it like outside of the five books of Moses. We don't believe any other part of the Old Testament. Secondly, they said, a matter of fact, we don't even believe because you would have to go outside of the five books of Moses to hear this. We don't even believe that the temple should be in Jerusalem. We're going to be on Mount Gerizim. So they went and built a temple on Mount Gerizim. So now you got these two people with their two little churches on opposite sides of the spectrum. I got a Bible. You got a Bible. And now they've been clashing. Jews, follow me, still history. Jews in 122 B.C. Only threw two dates at you. 722 B.C. when Israel was booted. 128 B.C. 
when the temple on Gerizim was destroyed. Just to show you, it was friction all the way from then to Jesus' day. This is going to make sense in a minute. Here you have this Samaritan who hates Jews, never has been to the place that Jesus called his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem. Doesn't want any of the rest of the book, so he doesn't hold, she doesn't hold to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, none of that. And now we're going to see that Jesus is going to meet her. I know she doesn't think that she's got a place in God's kingdom. Let's read. I'm going to read that first three again. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. First thing I want you to take note at is John gives you some preliminary verses to show you a providential meeting, a providential meeting. My father taught me as a kid, there's no such thing as luck. Anytime I run around and say lucky, I mean, eventually he started popping me in the mouth just to awaken me to the fact there is no such thing as luck. Everything happens and God is in control of everything. Providence is when circumstances are what we see, but behind the scenes, there's something that God is doing. Often the, the verses that seem like they're just getting you into the heart of the story is setting up the providence that's behind the scene. And you have to be able to peep. Oh, it's the providence that gets me to the point where I can understand the point of the story. We hear that Jesus has to leave where he is in Judea and go to Galilee. He didn't want to. So this isn't Jesus like, come on, we have to go to the other side. This is Jesus having to uproot just because now some beef is looming on the horizons. So this is a providential meeting. It wasn't even a purposeful one. It says here that when he heard, he knew that the Pharisees had beef. Remember, if you were with us, when John the baptizer's juice was starting to buzz, the Pharisees sent somebody to say, yo, let's make sure this dude isn't going to be too on point And he isn't going to get a whole bunch of people to join him and leave us. Well, here it is again. And Jesus knew how the Pharisees get when somebody else's buzz starts buzzing. So he, they hear that his buzz is eclipping John's buzz. So Jesus said, come on, we better bounce. But then the text says that he had to go to Samaria. The question here is, in what way is this ahead? And so you see the two things. Either he had to go because that was the most logical route, because it was the shortest route from Judea to Galilee. And I believe that there is a sense in which that is the most com the most natural sense. He had to go to he had Oh, he's going to Jerusalem, which means he had, excuse me, he had, he's going to Galilee, which means he had to go through Samaria which most people did that superstitious and or ultra strict Jews went around Samaria, much longer trek, much more inconvenient trek. So technically he didn't have to, because there really are two ways you could go. But Jesus felt no compulsion to avoid Samaria. So therefore that had to is probably now a comment by John to let you know, even though he didn't have to, he had to go through Samaria. Keep it going. A providential meeting has set up an ability to maximize a missional moment. Remember that missional. The Bible says, 
Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. It also echoes that. That's Colossians 4, 5. It also echoes that in Ephesians 5, uh, 15 to 17, where it says, yo, act as wise when you're hanging around with people who are not down with the Lord. It says, making the most of the opportunity. Make the most. Jesus is the ultimate in efficient missional living. Remember, living that... You can put an adjective to describe his whole life is looking for moments to maximize for the purpose of God's mission. Now, he's skilled. The person who says, I'm going to maximize my missional moment becomes skilled at flipping ordinary circumstances into an opportunity to not get mad, but to look for the providential meetings. This week, this rocked me because I was been frustrated by something that came in my life that forces me in another direction. I was mad. I was angry every time I talked about it. I still am trusting God to help me get over it. But when I looked at this, here are some people who misunderstand Jesus. Here are some people that's troubling Jesus. He has to leave where he is. But rather than get mad, he goes and then runs right into a maximizing missional moment, making the most of it. Now, check it. He was mindful of God's mission. It says here, he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The reason why I said he was mindful that he was on God's mission is because, listen, if preference were dictating it, he could have avoided the Samaritans. But because he was mindful that God has a mission to see the world reached, we know that was on his heart when he comes smack dab in the middle of Samaria to a well that was known to have a high Samarian population, Samaritan population. He gets there around noon, which is the heat of the day. Now, verse five to all the way to six, five and six, give you some details that's going. You think they're just padding the story, but they're not. You can tell a showdown, another showdown, the showdown between Jesus and the purification pots, a showdown between Jesus and Nicodemus, a showdown between Jesus and the temple. Here is a showdown between Jesus and another religious cultural icon. It just says Jacob, a a person that the Jews and the Samaritans had a lot of esteem for, and a wells there, a a symbol in this culture of a whole bunch of stuff we're going to get to. So now you got this showdown and you can see it looming for those of us that are sort of watching it like a play, like Mace was saying. And it says here, Jesus gets there the sixth hour. You don't even know. That's noon. And you're wondering, what does that have to do? And then it says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Jesus looks here and he comes to this place where he not only demonstrates that he's mindful of God's mission, but he demonstrates that he's willing to cross any barrier that keeps him from the mission. And that's racial barriers, cultural barriers, situational barriers. Jesus will not be stopped from being missional. Now, for us, if we don't like the place, if we're not comfortable, if they don't have the kind of homes we like, if it's not close enough to the if it doesn't have enough grass in the front yard, these things will make a switch a mission. Or a mission target. 
But if when you're governed by God's mission and you can sense that God wants his glory spread to the kinds of people that the, the more religious or the more affluent or the more strong usually stay away from. Jesus' contemporaries stay away from these people. Jews that are supposed to be the light to the Gentiles don't even go to this half Jew, half Gentile. So Jesus, whether he likes it or not, Jesus, though it's hot and he winds up at a place where uh, he where he is hot. He doesn't have any water. He says, I'm still going to go because he's not just mindful. He's willing to cross any barrier to the mission. And then what he does is he also doesn't worry about the cultural taboos. The, his his dedication to being missional even makes him forget about how it's going to damage his personal reputation. Because look what he says here. He says to a woman of Samaria, give me a drink. The reason why this is important is because, well, let's listen to what the woman says and then explain it. Now, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. That explains why he needed somebody else to get him a drink. The disciples normally would have gotten him a drink. They probably had the water jug because they would get ready to travel in order to go get supplies and food. So they needed the water drink. So Jesus is just chilling by the well like, man, I'm tired. Pause. Sorry. Flame song. They forgot that you were a man. John didn't forget that he was a man. In fact, John had to always slip little notes in during his time in order to affirm Jesus is God. But that doesn't mean that he didn't become really man. So every now and then he highlights little things that's true of Jesus's humanity. One of them is he was weary. The other is he moves because he can sense trouble is around. I'm God. I ain't going nowhere. I wish I would, man. I'm sitting here to do God's will. He didn't do that. So he gets here and it's noon. He says, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, uh, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, here we go already. Jesus has already crossed all these barriers. She doesn't know it's because he's got something that she needs, but he's willing to do it. And the response says that he's crossed barriers that she doesn't even believe can, uh, should be crossed. But look at Jesus. Remember, I told you, he flips the convo. And he's, a, he's skilled at flipping the convo. He's skilled at flipping the scenario. He's skilled at grabbing a scenario that could be just natural and turning it into something missional. Look what he says here. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's mindful of God's mission. He's committed to crossing barriers that get in the way of God's mission. He allows personal need to be eclipsed by God's mission. Starts off with him hungry, wanting a drink. Immediately, his asking for a drink gives way into what you know was a lengthy dialogue. You should be asking me for a drink. What you talking about? You just asked me for a drink. I'm saying you should ask me for a drink. No, I mean, you could just see them like, what's going on here? I thought you wanted a drink. I thought you should have wanted a drink. Like, this is crazy. That's because his personal need gives way to her need. Missional people put their personal needs on the back burner 
because of the mission of me. He has to expose. Now, Jesus Christ comes on the scene. Remember, what Jesus is bringing is revelation. Stuff that no one else either has heard before or stuff that no one else fully understands. Even what they do understand up that far is inadequate. So he's coming with the rest of the story. Sometimes he makes something obsolete. Sometimes he upgrades stuff. And sometimes he he just affirms things are still cool. Here he comes and he says, wait, if you knew the gift of God, because he's got to make her insecure about her knowledge of the gift of God so that she'll be open to his definition of the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God, you would have flipped the script and asked me to get you some water. Y'all remember John the Baptist. If you know your Bible, this is just surf, like this will show you, you don't. And then you just you have an incentive to read more. John the Baptist, when he when Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, because John the Baptist knew the gift of God and who it was that came to him. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and said, yo, baptize me. John the Baptist said. You should be baptizing me. Woo! Y'all see that? The contrast between somebody who knows the deal. Talk to people. You know who knows God, the gift of God, and who Jesus Christ is, whom God sent. We always act like, you don't know their heart. Talk to people. Jesus, I can tell by your response to my offer if you know me. Give me some water. Um... All right, but when I'm finished giving you some water, can you give me some of that water you got? I know who you are. (laughs) He makes her insecure. And he has to expose her spiritual neediness. And he uses the idea of water and thirst. He looks here and he says, well, she continues. She says, sir, you don't even have anything to draw water with. I don't know if this is like if if we should make her like a sister or just like a regular person. Is this, sir, you don't even have anything to draw water with. Or should we make her like, please, you ain't even got nothing to drink no water with. I'm not sure, but we may go between both of them. But where are you going to get that living water? Hook a sister up. Now, I just want to know, are you greater than Jacob? I mean, he gave us the well. I mean, come on. And drink from it himself. So did his sons and his livestock. Come on. Tell me, buddy. I don't know which one to make them. But she says, sir, give me this water you're talking about. But she peeps that he doesn't even have anything to draw it out. So this is really sarcasm. Come on. Give me the water. And the reason why you know it's sarcasm, because she moves to this jive turkey. I know you don't think that you, you, you're deep. You ain't deep as Jacob, are you? The one who gave us the well. Now, as we go through John, what you're going to see is we read it wrong. Everybody, like we think Jesus has instant success in missional living. He's always heckled and hassled. Remember, Nicodemus, he had to say truly, truly three times to emphasize. I'm telling you, dang, I mean, and he often has to say, listen, nobody gets it from up there except he who started up there and came down. I'm telling you stuff. I know it sounds bad because it comes from up there, but I ain't lying. I'm telling you the truth here. Same thing. 
I know I don't have a, 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 a container to give water. That don't work. I'm going to show you. I'm not even talking about that kind of water. But Jesus is too, too poised and too efficient to waste all the words I would say. Like, I don't believe you don't believe me. Jesus is, let me just work with you a little bit. Let me unpack this. Look what Jesus says. Let's keep reading. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the, of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus doesn't argue about is he greater than Jacob. You don't want to like get people to start dissing people that God has given a little bit of honor to Jacob. He just says, it's not that Jacob is bad, it's that Jacob's not enough. It's not that Jacob's well isn't helpful, it's just that it's not enough. He says, physical, let's just help you understand this. You're going to drink this and you're going to be back tomorrow. You're going to drink this and... Later on today, you're going to have to go to your jug and drink again. Anyone who drinks this water that you say came from Jacob, that's cool, is going to thirst again. So you've got physical water. Now, they didn't have plumbing. They didn't have deer park. Nobody came with the truck, brought them the little container, and they flipped it over and pressed the little blue lid. None of that. So for them, this water issue is deep. So she did understand we are talking about something significant in their context. That which is the key to life. This is on the outside of the desert anyway. I didn't make this notation. It's 12 o'clock. Women don't come to the well to draw at 12 o'clock. It's too hot. They come early in the day. They come late in the day. Also, it was a woman's thing to draw, or slaves and servants. Women went together. You know how sisters like to do it. They was just over my crib this weekend doing it like that. All together, getting it in to the wee hours. Well, that's how women did. The fact that this woman is here by, by herself is an indication she's not in the girl clique. Now, Jesus uses... Hmm, look at this, all by herself. Plus, divinely, he has insights into her life. He says the best way to talk to her about what's going on in her life and missing in her life is she needs water. She needs something to satisfy, to quench and to cleanse. He says, and so just know the water that you're here drinking is not adequate. In the Bible, there's several passages that use water as this way to help you to understand. Now, in their day, they were agricultural. They needed water. They didn't have plumbing like we have. So we take water for granted. We, we drink water. Ugh, Dad, this is lukewarm. Shh. Go in the refrigerator. Dang, no, no, uh, no bottle of water. Go back, do a little more, then go through a couple of ice cubes, which is just frozen water. See, that, you know, we, we can't appreciate this. Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Jesus is getting ready to use this idea that, that everybody is familiar with in this context. Like deers need this thing to satisfy their thirst. You have needs. All of us have needs. And Jesus says, water is a perfect way to talk to you about how I satisfy thirst. Satisfaction. Vitality, Isaiah 55, all who hunger and thirst. 
He says, come, get from me so your soul may live. Your soul, the inside of us, not, not the tongue. Like right now, mine is mad dry. Yo, that can't do anything for the longings I have, the stuff that sometimes makes me want to creep to the right and the left, because inside I'm not drinking from the satisfyingness of Jesus Christ. He gives uh, nutrition, Jeremiah 2.13. Uh, God says, this is the problem I have with Israel. They trade me this fountain of bubbling up fresh, crisp water, spiritually speaking, He says, they trade me for little pots filled with water that doesn't even have water by the time you go to it because it's got a crack in it. Instead of cistern, but basically those are just huge containers, not of living water, of still water that had cracks. So by the time you go to get your cup, it's gone. Plus water not just satisfies the yearnings. But it also cleanses Ezekiel, Zechariah. They all talk about God using water to cleanse. She needed both. And, and Jesus is going to point that out. Jesus is going to say, oh, well, wait, hold on real quick. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Turn with me real quick. John chapter seven. Now we're going to get to this. So I'm not preaching John chapter seven, but I just want to show you. Imagine right now, put everything you've heard up. Jesus capitalizes on the fact that this woman has yearnings, internal yearnings, and she's defiled, which is proof that even the society knew she was defiled, which is why she's there by herself at noon. She needs a illustration that cuts both ways. You need your yearnings filled so you'll stop getting the position that got you cut off, and you need to be cleansed. Well... All this stuff about water we see God has used. But what does God place in us to satisfy the yearnings and to meet that need? Chapter 7, verse 37 of John. Says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Using it again. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's Jesus again using that same concept. But then John tells us what God's way of giving you living water is. 39. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given. But Jesus was not because Jesus was not yet glorified. What she was missing was the spirit. What Nicodemus was missing was the spirit. What you and I, before we meet Jesus Christ, I don't care what we've got going for us, we're missing the spirit. And the spirit does a number of things in the scriptures. One, it just starts the rebirth process and accomplishes rebirthing us. But you can't just get rebirthed by the spirit and say, thanks, take off. I got it. Don't be bothered with me. I'll, I'll manage. You need a spirit that you don't have to keep getting, that you can keep accessing, but you don't have to keep getting. The reason why I say that is because Jesus says anyone who drinks of me won't thirst again. The water I'm going to give, you won't thirst again. Is that because one drink and that's it? 
No, what he's saying is you don't have to thirst again because inside of you is an eternal pump providing you with access to the quencher. Just like if you have just if you just lived in a building full of water, you wouldn't thirst. Doesn't mean you have to go get a drink. It's like I ain't got a thirst. Oh, I just go get a glass of water. That's why the filling of the spirit is not us getting the spirit again. Remember, you don't have to go and get a new source of of satisfaction. The spirit filling is when you take another drink of the, the, the water that is already there that you have access to. It's when you're under his control and it's like another dose of what is already yours. It's not this idea of you need the spirit to come on you again. You're with me. And I'm looking, I'm doing pretty good. And we're almost finished, but not because I'm too long, because I'm right on schedule. As soon as you try, as your missional, as soon as you try to move people from the physical realm to spiritual realm, physical need to spiritual need, they always find a way to wiggle and get out of it. So now she comes and she says, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She stays on the physical plane. Jesus says, let's go deeper. I got to show you that your greatest need is not physical. It's spiritual. I'm not going to just say it. You You need me to expose it. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you now you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus moves trying to help her to see, look, I'm here to solve. I like this. He goes beyond her desire to her need. We live in a day where we wrestle with the tension between meeting people's seeker sensitivity and giving them what they need. Jesus keeps plowing through what she wants. She wants to not have to come to the well again. She doesn't want to have to, like, change what she's doing with this man. She didn't ask Jesus for a counseling session. She's trying to keep it. Uh, Dad, just give me more water so I don't have to keep coming back here. Jesus keeps plowing through. But that's not what your greatest need is. He says, go get your husband. There's a thirst that you're not going to satisfy. Even if I gave you a pipeline straight from Jacob's well to your crib. She says, oh. He knows. And we don't even realize today. That our behavior often demonstrates our thirsts. And sometimes we try to force God to quench a thirst he's not offering to quench. But what our thirst is really screaming for, he can quench. Immorality is just a thirst. God says, through the spirit, I can quench it. When we steal... With thirsting. He says, yo, these are the things. Addictions are thirsts. 
Jesus is saying, I come on the scene and I meet you. In the, and when you trust in me, when the spirit of God is placed in you, you won't, you, you won't have to meet those thirsts the way you used to meet them. You will instantly have the eternal, what he calls the living water, springing up to eternal life. You'll have a vibrant reality that's booming in you that can handle all your thirsts. The woman starting to get shaky. Um, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Or, ah, you a preacher or something? Jesus goes beyond tangents to truth. She gets off the subject of her personal failure and begins to shift the convo to some more cultural and religious debate. That's what they always do. As soon as you pin, I'll be like, uh, yeah, because my man, but see, that's why I don't like to go to church. And you'd be like, I'm not on church anymore. We were just talking about you and your weed addiction. I'm just saying, man, um, I don't even go to church like that, really. Because I didn't say nothing about church. Yeah, they try to get you off. This is what she does. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place where people uh, is the place where people ought to worship. She's like, wait, we were just talking about your husband and the five you had and the one that is not your own. How do we get on a mountain now? <laughs> That's what I would have said. But once again, Jesus is the perfect model of what it means to really be missional. He moves beyond tangents and he gets down the bottom line, the truth. Watch this. He answers a real quick, but still brings up the issue of the spirit again. <laughs> Woo! Welcome. Look, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, that I was coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you will worship the father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and ta-da, is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, that part of you that's dead, and truth. For the Father is seeking, he's pursuing, he's rigging scenarios that move people from Judea to Galilee by way of Samaria. He's coming after people to produce worship in them. See, God is spirit, not just physical. God is spirit. Those who worship him must have a spiritual pipeline connected to him and truth. Jesus uh, sits here and he determines to help her see her need for something spiritual, even though she gets off the subject and is happy to just have a physical need met. That's us. We like this world. We like the five senses. We, that's what we want. You know, sometimes people get all deep. Yo, I'm hungry. Somebody say, I have food that you know not of. Let's go and pray. Like you get mad at them. <laughs> but Jesus used the same illustration. I'm thirsty. But then she comes and he gets on a tangent. Well, excuse me, he doesn't get on a tangent. He dives into dialogue with her about her thirst. He dismisses the smoke screens and the barriers. It says, Mount Gerizim is wrong. The Jews had it right. He says, you don't even, wor you worship what you don't know. Like, that's what I'm saying, like, 
You got a lot of info, but really you don't even understand the real God. You can't convince people today that they don't understand the gift of God or the one that God has sent. That's why I like this. He doesn't he doesn't shrink back from telling her, listen, it's not about this mountain, not about that mountain. But look, you need me to help you. To understand what it is about. It's about the spirit. I keep trying to tell you, you need something inside of you. That you need something inside of you to be different. Now, for us, we take it for granted. We met Jesus Christ and we've, I mean, if you're saved in here, you've heard all the options out there. And Jesus Christ rung true. So clearly the spirit had moved on you, woke you up. Boom. You believed in Jesus Christ. He comes in. The spirit comes in to now eternally satisfy all your longings. Not your, the longings you want. The longing, the true root of the longing. Now, Jesus comes and he reaffirms her spiritual ignorance. He affirms the proper order of God's dealing. Salvation is from the Jews. Don't try to like take it over. But he reiterates the crucial need for her to have spiritual transformation. Worship is a spiritual act, not a spatial activity. And that's what we're here to tell people on our missional journey. But we can't. They don't salivate for the spiritual, though. It's hard to get people to choose the scriptures over the new PlayStation 3. It will be hard to get a female to respect. Like, yo, I don't know. God doesn't want you to do that right now. Why don't you? When she's looking at him and he looks fine or vice versa. It's hard to get people to embrace things that are of the spirit when our longings are really physical. God says, okay, I'm just telling you. And then lastly, he moves from what he gives to who he is. He moves from what he gives to who he is. Let's read. The woman said to him, another tangent somewhat. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He didn't do this to anybody else in this book. Talking about the least likely to participate in God's good stuff. The only one, the most unlikely person gets the beefiest declaration. I'm the Messiah. He moves from what he gives. He started, ah, the water I give. He Eventually, you got to get down to who he is. Even if you convince people what God offers, they like the idea of him offering it, but they stumble on who he is. And at the end of the day, Jesus Christ comes on the scene and tells her, I'm he. You know, Jesus, I used to always wonder why he didn't tell people he was the Messiah since he came to expose himself as the Messiah. But the Messiah for the Jews carried so much political swirl that to say I'm the Messiah would just cause the city to be too chaotic because everybody would be thinking, oh, real king. We're going to see that later on. Yo, let's make him a king. Yo, come on. Rome is about to go down. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Come on, y'all. The Samaritans didn't have that concept of Messiah. They had a concept of Messiah who was the, like the prophet, like Moses in Deuteronomy. 
The Messiah who was going to come, their Messiah was just somebody who was going to come and correct their understanding of spiritual things. So Jesus could tell her, yo, the one who's here to correct your understanding of spiritual things is here without her going back and saying, yo, y'all, come on, grab your gats. Messiah's here. He moves from what he gives to who he is. Based on our behavior and background and social status and achievements, some of us seem like we're most likely to wind up in heaven. Some of us feel like, I know I'm not going. And we base that on our behavior, background, social status and achievements. God is looking at the Nicodemus who looks like they should be with God, looking at the Samaritan woman who's an adulterer like they shouldn't. And God is saying, both of you must be born again. Both of you need me to place the spirit of God inside you. Both of you all need God to come in and raise you from the dead and then constantly feed you as a way of life. Some of us will ask a million questions just to never get down to the root of what's blocking us from receiving spiritual transformation because we know that it, or we feel that it's going to mess up our pursuit of physical transformation. Some of us, we, we rather knock the boots than just talk about intimacy with God. We rather go out and puff on something or drink something to the point where we're altered than to be controlled by the spirit. And so today, I believe it's a beautiful picture. Jesus has come on the scene to promise, I am a soul satisfier. I go to the root. Oh, this only light, like, remember, I remember when I came back, like when the Lord got me to the point where I've never looked back since, where the Lord got me where Sin shed, sin shed like that. It was the day when all my efforts came up empty. I remember, I remember y'all sensing I'm tired of the weed, I'm tired of the blow, I'm tired of the drinks, I'm tired of trying to go to a club, like I just need another one. It used to be I didn't want to go home. I wanted to spend the night with people all the time just because I, like, I, I needed another drink. And I remember when God became enough. I, I never forget it. When, when, when the era with, where God became enough started. And I remember feeling like, dang, I didn't know that you really could be content with God and a piece of bread. I remember when I didn't have anything, when I stayed in abandoned buildings, word is born with, I was in abandoned buildings, but me and the Lord were getting it in from the inside. The Holy Spirit and I was getting it. True worship, not on a mountain. I didn't have to go to church. I was in the building, the abandoned building. And me and the Lord were getting it. And I remember saying, this is what he meant when he said, whoever drinks of me won't thirst again. And today we're trying to help a generation of people to first value the fact that Jesus Christ meets the greater need and he meets the physical needs. 
And so as we prepare to close, I pray you've learned from Jesus's example of what it means to be missional. I pray that we've learned that the mission, the missional Christian has one message that Jesus satisfies the soul. I pray we recognize that the mission person or the person who's missional, they're mindful of God's mission, willing to cross any barrier that gets in the way of that mission. They allow their personal needs to be eclipsed by the importance of the mission. <laughs> that they move people just from tangents to truth and they get beyond just what God gives <laughs> and tells people who he is. He's Jesus Christ, the soul satisfier, the living water. I like the fact that John is going to have